those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Erickson. I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland, and I want to wrap up. We've been in this series for a month now on, on uh, is the Bible really God's word? And I'm going to wrap that series up now this weekend and next weekend. And uh, what I want to finish this message series by talking about is, does the Bible have errors in it? Uh, does it have mistakes in it? And it's a huge topic. And so it's gonna, I'm, I'm going to work on this this week and next week. We're only going to lay the foundation today. Next week we're going to run some tests and do some things. You're going to learn a lot about the Bible and how do you read it and all this sort of stuff. But does the Bible have errors in it? And just so you know, I'm also in these two weeks of dealing with does the Bible have errors, I'm going to cover some, off some of those other questions that uh, you guys have been asking uh, over the last month that I talked about a couple weeks before. Why is there so many uh, different English translations and all that sort of stuff? But, but does the Bible have errors in it is a hugely important qu- question because it comes down to trust. It really comes down to trust. Uh, all the things we have, all the hope we have, right? The hope we have last week, Pastor Ray preached that awesome message on heaven and hope. Our hope in heaven is based on things in here. If there's mistakes in here, if there's errors, then how do we know which stuff is right and which stuff is wrong? If there's, if there's any errors in here, even small, it destroys our trust in the thing as a whole. How do we trust God's promises? How do we trust God's, God's promise? It says in here that if we repent and turn to Jesus that he will forgive us our sins. How do we know we can rely on that? How do we know we can rely that af- on the fact that after death, he's going to raise us from the dead? How do we know we can rely on the promise of heaven? How do we know we can, all of these things we know about God, we, we trust them because they're written in here. But the moment you introduce into here and you say, well, actually, this book has some errors in it. It has some mistakes. Well, which parts are mistaken? And suddenly we have to kind of pick and choose. And suddenly our confidence all of our confidence and our faith and our hope for the future, which is so important, all of it is based on can we really trust this thing and does it have errors? And so this week I'm going to lay the foundation. Next week we're going to test it. It's a big topic. But I, w- I want to talk about over these last two weeks of this series, uh, does this book have mistakes in it? And of course, I'm not going to keep you in suspense. The short answer is no. It doesn't have any mistakes in it. Okay, now it's going to take me a while to prove that to you. And this week, actually, I'm not even going to, we're not even going to test that thing so much. What I want to do today is I want to lay the foundation of how do we come to the conclusion? How do we come to the conclusion that the Bible doesn't have mistakes in it? How, how do we get there? Okay, how do we know that? And then next week, we're going to test it and see if it holds up to be true, all right? So bow your heads with me, and let's pray, and then let's get into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we, we've been singing about heaven, we've been talking about heaven. Our hope, Lord, is the resurrection which you promise us, and you promise it to us in your word. And Lord, that's what our, that's what our trust is in, that's what our faith is in, and, and I just pray, God, that through this message, Lord, that we're going to grow in our confidence in your word, that we can trust you, that you are true in everything you say, that we can have faith in the promises that you have given us, that there are no errors in your word. And I thank you for what you're going to do in our hearts over these next couple of weeks, the last couple of weeks of this message series. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So does the Bible have errors in it? Well, no. As I said before, it doesn't have errors in it, and we will talk about that more in depth, what that means and stuff next week, but how do we know? How do we know the Bible doesn't have errors in it? And the first thing you need to know is we can't prove it scientifically. When I say that there's no errors in the Bible, we don't come to that knowledge because I can scientifically prove to you that everything in here is true, that would be impossible. For example, I can't scientifically prove to you that the story of David and Goliath ever happened. I can't do it. It's in the past. 
I can't scientifically prove to you that Jonah was ever, you know, swallowed up by a whale. I can't scientifically prove to you that the Ten Commandments were written in stone. I can't, I can't scientifically prove to you any of those things because they're in the distant past. I can't bring them out for you here on the stage and say, look, here's David killing Goliath. I can't bring, I can't bring the past over here in front of you on stage and say, look, there's Moses crossing the Red Sea. We can't prove those kinds of things because they're from history. History isn't that sort of a thing that you can prove it now. It's already happened. Now, on the flip side of that coin, it's also very important for skeptics to remember that they also can't disprove it on the other side. It's impossible to disprove that David and Goliath ever happened. It's impossible to disprove that Jonah was ever uh, uh, swallowed by a whale. See, the skeptic has his assumptions. The skeptic looks at the stories in here, and his assumption is miracles and stuff like that don't happen, therefore these are fairy tales. But that's just an assumption. He feels very strongly that it's a good assumption, but just because you feel strongly about, about something doesn't mean it's true. I mean, I know many diehard Bomber fans that every year think that this is the year they're going to go to the playoffs and <laughs> this is the year they're going to actually be in the new stadium and, and it just never happens. But uh, <laughs> just, uh, so just because you have an assumption and just because you feel strongly that your assumption is true doesn't make it true. So the skeptic has an assumption that miracles don't happen. So he, he says, based on that scientifically, I can't believe this book. But all he needs to do is look out of the window and look at the universe all around him to see the grass and the trees and the animals and the complex bodies that, that we have as human beings and our brains and consciousness and all of that sort of stuff to see that the biggest miracle of all is all around us, the fact that we exist, that there is a universe. There must be a God out there somewhere. And the moment you give room that there could have been that miracle, that, that someone act, actually had to make the universe, then of course, certainly the fact that there could be other miracles could also follow from that. But ultimately, we can't prove that it's true. They can't prove that it's not true. So how do we come to this place that we say there's no mistakes in here? Because again, it's very important. It's very important. Everything we believe, if we're going to have trust, we're going to have faith, we're going to have hope in it, it's based on this idea that there's no mistakes here. So how do we get there if we can't prove it? How do we know we're right and they're wrong? And so what I want to show you today is there's, there's four things. And actually, we could look at more than four, but I've kind of simplified it down to four key ones. But how do we get to this place that we say this book has no errors in it, has no mistakes? We come to it from four other deductions, outside deductions and outside evidence that bring us to the place where we can reasonably say, yes, we can trust that this thing has no mistakes. So there's four points, four lines of evidence, four lines of reasoning that bring us to that place. And so I just want to bring you through those. The first one we're not going to spend any time on because I did that extensively in, I think it was week two or three of this series. But the first line of evidence that leads us to believe that there are no errors in this is we first have to start by asking, is there a God? Is there a God? Everybody has to answer this question. Like I said, I'm not going to spend much time here um, because I did earlier in the series, but everybody has to answer the question, not just Christians. Skeptics have to answer the question, where do we come from? Where do we come from? Okay, you say there isn't a God. That's your assumption. That's different than ours. Is that a reasonable assumption? And they have to explain how something, the universe, could come out of nothing. They have to explain that. And they have to explain how life could come out of non-life. They have to explain that because their assumption is there's no God, so it had to happen somehow. How did it happen? 
And some of, their, some of their reasoning is really crazy. I heard one guy once, one of the most famous uh, atheists in the world right now, Richard Dawkins, and he was talking about how life could have started here on the earth. And he was, he's very convinced that there is no such thing as God. But he went on in this video interview to talk about how he believes that it's possible that aliens uh, seeded life here on earth thousands of years ago. That's one thing you can believe, right? But you have to have an ex- explanation, right? You have to have an explanation. If there's not a God, then it's got to be something else. So that's the first thing. Is there a God? And of course, as I talked about a few weeks ago, uh, the most reasonable explanation when you look at a complex system and you see, here we have a complex system, the most reasonable explanation is not that it came out of nothing by itself, by accident. The most reasonable explanation is that someone must be out there intelligent that put this together. And so every human being must come to some kind of a conclusion on that question. We've come to the conclusion that the most reasonable thing to believe is that there is a God out there, all right? So we talked about that. But there's a second question that we then have to ask as we lead up into this question of, does the Bible have mistakes? First, we have to start with, is there a God? There's a second question, though, that I didn't talk about in this series yet. And ultimately, this is the most important question for all of Christianity. I mean, if you were going to really boil it down, and I'm not exaggerating at all to say that if you were going to boil all of Christianity down to one thing, that it all hangs on one question, it all hangs on one nail, if this question is answered in the negative, all of Christianity is false. If it's answered in the positive, all of Christianity is true. You could boil it down to this one thing. And I'm not exaggerating. If this thing does not, if this thing is false then all of Christianity, not just 10%, not just 50%, not just 90%, the whole thing is out the window. And the one thing is this, did Jesus actually die, or I mean actually rise from the dead? That's the one question. If you want to boil down the most important question to all of Christianity, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? It all boils down to that. If he didn't rise from the dead, if he's not a real person who actually lived, and by the way, there is so much historical evidence for Jesus being a real person who actually lived in the first century AD that basically nobody denies anymore that he was a real person. They used to try to deny that, but there's so much evidence for him living, being an actual person, nobody even tries to deny that anymore. So if Jesus was an actual real person who actually did die on the cross, which and there's lots of evidence for that as well, not just in the Bible, but outside the Bible, he's an actual person who actually died on the cross. If he actually did at a point in time as a real event, a historical event, not just a fairy tale or fable, if he really did raise himself from the dead, that proves everything. That's what Christianity is. Then he's God because only God could raise himself from the dead. And so basically all of Christianity, people want to nitpick. People, skeptics want to nitpick. Well, I don't understand this verse. This verse doesn't make sense to me. And this verse is a contradiction. And we're going to look at some of these supposed contradictions next week. But people want to look at these little details like, that's a contradiction. And that verse doesn't make sense to me. And that's why I can't be a Christian. And they're skipping over the, the white elephant in the room, which is, did Jesus rise from the dead or not? That's the big question. Everything else is just little details. If he rose from the dead, the details are going to work themselves out because he's God. So did he rise from the dead or not? And if he didn't, the whole thing is a wash. If he didn't rise from the dead, we have nothing. He's not God. We don't have salvation from our sins in him. We can't trust anything he says. He doesn't have the power to raise us from the dead in the future. We cannot have hope after death. It all comes down to a historical event. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And so I'm going to spend a bunch of time now just on the resurrection. Because ultimately our trust in this book is going to be based on something else. 
We don't, we don't believe in Jesus because of this book. We believe that this book is true because we believe in Jesus. That's actually the way it goes. So do we have good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If he did, that's going to go a long way towards telling us if we can trust in this thing or not. Well, the amazing thing is, and I, I'm going to quote you a whole bunch right now, the incredible thing about the resurrection is this. People would think in our culture, they would think it's kind of like a fable and a fairy tale and there's not much evidence for it. There's actually so much historical evidence that points to Jesus having actually risen from the dead after he died. There's so much historical evidence to that that you can, I, I had pages this week, I was just doing some research, and I, I had pages and pages of quotes of scholars and historians and lawyers and all kinds of different brilliant people, philosophers, who over the years have been skeptics of Christianity and who thought the resurrection was a myth, and after they studied the actual history of did this event happen, they actually converted and came around based on the, on the historicity of the resurrection, and they actually converted based on that and said the resurrection must have happened, Christianity is true, Jesus must be God. I'm going to read you a few quotes. I could read you dozens. I'm only going to read you a handful here today. I'm going to start with Simon Gr Greenleaf, and then that's going to launch us off into some other things. Simon Greenleaf is widely considered to be one of the greatest legal minds in all of history. He founded the, the famous, world-famous Harvard School of Law, and he was a skeptic most of his life, didn't, thought that Christianity was myths, thought the resurrection was a fairy tale, all sort of stuff. And then later on in his life, he decided to take all his expertise was in uh, jury evidence, witness evidence, and all that sort of stuff. And he decided to take his expertise in witness evidence and to prove once and for all that the Gospels are a myth and Jesus did not actually rise from the dead and all that sort of stuff. And so he started this study, and the more he studied, the more frustrated he became. And he became more and more and more and more frustrated because he could not disprove this thing. And in the end, actually, the evidence mounted up for him so much that he actually was forced to convert in the attempt to write a book disproving the resurrection. He was actually forced to convert, and he writes this, okay? So this is the man who founded the Harvard School of Law. He also wrote a book called A Treatise on, on the Law of Evidence, which is, again, considered one of the classics of, of legal writing. And this is what he said. It was therefore impossible that the disciples could have persisted in affirming the truths that they narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead, and had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. The resurrection of Christ is the most verifiable fact of ancient history. That's what a guy who came in, and he, wasn't, he was biased against it. That's what a, one of the great legal minds in all of history said after he studied the, evidence, the historical evidence for the resurrection. He said, this is, the resurrection of Christ is one of the most verifiable facts, one of the most verifiable facts of ancient history. All right? Hugely important. And I want you to notice his line there at the beginning. It was therefore impossible that the disciples could have persisted in affirming the truth that they have narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead. What's he talking about there? What he's talking about there is, is it's impossible. As he begins to study the events and what happened to the apostles after Jesus' death and the historical records of what happened to the early Christians, he, he came to the conclusion it's impossible that somebody would make up a lie, randomly make up a lie about seeing Jesus rise from the dead and carry that out through such persecution and suffering that they went through, it is impossible that any human being would do that unless they actually saw what they said they saw. Now this is, this is a huge point because again, any skeptic, skeptics actually have to answer this question. Skeptics don't want to think about the resurrection because they think it's a myth, but they actually have to answer this question. And we as Christians can actually build our faith because we don't think about that fact. We just think, you know, 2,000 years ago, well, I mean, it's possible they just made up a lie. 
it's possible they did it. I mean, we don't believe he did, but if a skeptic says that to us, we don't know what to say. We think, well, it is possible they lied. I, I want... I want to help you imagine this now for a little bit. Let's just spend a little bit of time here. And I want you to see how crazy this is to believe that the disciples just randomly made up a lie and then carried it on to the end of their lives and started the world's biggest religion as a result. Okay? So imagine with me for a moment that I died. Okay? So just imagine. Don't, don't start crying and all that sort of stuff. Uh, just, just imagine. Okay? It's just, we're just pretending. Um, but imagine I died. And I, you know, how I died, it doesn't matter, okay? But let, let's try and kind of parallel it with the Jesus story here. So let's make it a public death, okay? Let's say that the, the government of Manitoba, whatever, they just decide they really don't like Celta. Maybe they shot dad already, I don't know. But they just decide, okay, you know what? The, these Dirksons are just a blight on our politically correct society. And so they, they take me to the legislature there and they, they shoot me publicly, okay? Let's just imagine, okay? It doesn't matter how I died, but it's just, uh, okay? So lots of people are there, okay? And some people are happy, some people hopefully are sad. And uh, my wife is there. You know, some of my close family, some of you guys are there. And uh, people are there, and it's a public death. So then they, and they shoot me there at the legislature, and then I die, okay? And then we have a funeral. And uh, a few of you guys come out, so I have, you know, some staff from here at Southland are there. And, and again, LaDawn, my wife, is there, my kids. You know, lots of people are there, and, the, and I die, okay? So I'm dead. It's over, okay? Now, what would happen? What do you think if within a day or two, it can't be a month later, can't be a year later, because within a couple of days, we need a bunch of people to be absolutely convinced, or to be saying that they're convinced, that I have risen from the dead. So let's imagine that the very next day after the funeral, it's got to be right away, because within a couple of days, we need people saying that they've seen me risen from the dead. Let's imagine that the very day after this happens, after the funeral, my wife, LaDawn, starts calling around to a bunch of you and sending out emails, and she says, I've got this great idea. I want us to say that we've seen Chris risen from the dead and actually he's God and people can be saved by believing in him, okay? And I just think about that. Again, I'm not being blasphemous. This is not really going to happen and I'm not God and I didn't rise from the dead, okay? But I'm just pretending here. Let's make a parallel with Jesus. How would you feel? Okay, my wife LaDawn calls you. Okay, we're going to pretend, okay? Now remember, because a lot of people just think, well, they must have made it up. And even us Christians, someone tells us, they, the disciples obviously made it up. He didn't rise from the dead. They made it up. Okay, let's put ourselves in their shoes. Ladon calls you the next day and says, We're gonna, let's make up a blatant lie that you and I both know is a lie, and let's tell everybody we know that Chris raised from the dead and you can be saved by believing in him. How many of you would say yes to that? Okay, and any of you who raise your head, we have counseling at hand. We have major counseling for you outside. Are you even tempted to do that? Is anybody tempted to do that, even closely tempted to do something that crazy? No. And it's not just because you guys are Christians. Even non-Christians wouldn't be tempted to do that. I mean, first of all, it's just a blatant lie. Most people have something inside of them that they don't blatantly want to do wrong things unless there's something in it for them. Why am I going to lie, LaDon? Why would I lie about... Well, because you're going to be persecuted for it and you're going to be killed and nobody's going to like you and everybody's going to hate you. Oh, sign me up. Yep, okay. I saw Chris rise from the dead. I mean, these are not idiots. Just because they lived 2,000 years ago doesn't mean they're immoral morons, okay? They didn't... Nobody. You and I are not tempted by that. They were not tempted by that. To just make up a lie out of nothing, not only is it a lie, it's immoral. Most, most human beings don't, don't want to do something immoral unless at least there's something in it for them, but it's a stupid lie. It's a crazy lie. Nobody's going to believe it unless it's true. It's crazy, right? But let's... But it's actually harder than this, okay? Let's imagine, you know, so literally, I bet if LaDon tried 5,000 people, I mean, I, I would bet all my money, which isn't a lot, 
but I would bet like a lot of stuff that I have that she would get zero response on that. Yeah, so, and I got a probably over here, so that's pretty good, okay? So I, I'm betting that you would have a very difficult time finding anyone in your life who would actually say yes to doing that. I'm betting you would have a very difficult time finding that. But it's actually more difficult than that. Because LaDawn doesn't just need to find one person to say this. See, Christianity, it, here's the thing you need to know about Christianity, and skeptics have to answer this. They, it's not enough to just say, you Christians believe a myth. Well, then you tell me how Christianity got started. Because Christianity wasn't anywhere on the map. It's nowhere. We've got the Roman Empire, which is filled with paganism. We've got Greek paganism. We've got a whole bunch of different religions all over the earth. Pagan religions. We have Judaism. Christianity. Nobody's thinking about Christianity. We, I mean, we just, we live in a world with Christianity, and Christianity is the biggest religion, so we just assume it's always been around. It wasn't around before Jesus. Nobody was expecting this big new religion, Christianity, to start. There was no Christianity. Then this person, Jesus, who the historical records, it's very clear that there was actually a man named Jesus who lived, and atheists even don't deny that. He lives, he dies, and within 20 years, get this, within 20 years of this man, Jesus' death, this brand new religion, Christianity, which no one's ever heard of before, no one's looking for, out of nowhere, it explodes within two decades, within 20 years. It is in every single corner of the entire Roman Empire, and within 20 years, it is the world's biggest religion already by far. In 20 years, this thing has soared past, far past, any of the ancient religions that came before. It has soared far past, and it has remained there till this day, 2.2 billion people on the earth even right now, calling themselves Christians. And a skeptic has to explain, how does a religion come out of nothing like that and explode and get so many followers? How does that happen? See, LaDawn doesn't just have to convince one person to tell this lie. She actually needs, if we're going to parallel this with the story, it wasn't just one person. All of Jesus' disciples, all of his close family, his brothers, his sisters, his mom, all of his close followers, there, probably there was hundreds, like 500 and more who were going around immediately after Jesus saying they had seen him. Paul talks about 500 who had seen Jesus. But there's, so there's for sure hundreds who within, uh, within a couple of days, within a few days of Jesus dying, are saying that they've seen him risen again. So LaDawn doesn't just have to convince, she doesn't have to just find one totally crazy person out there to say Chris rose from the dead. She has to find, let's put a bare minimum, we won't even, okay, we won't even go for 500. Let's just say she has to find 100 people like that. What are the chances that LaDawn is going to find a hundred people in the entire world, never mind just people who know me. What are the chances she's going to find a hundred people who will blatantly lie? She'll phone them up and say, days after my funeral, and just say, uh, I want you to lie and say that Chris is risen from the dead and you've seen him and he's God and we all need to believe in him in order to be saved. What are the chances she's going to find a hundred? They are nil. But it gets worse than that. See, she doesn't just have to convince a hundred people to go along with a little lie. She didn't have to just convince 100 people that if someone asks you if you saw Jesus or Chris rise from the dead, then just nod and say that you did see him. She doesn't just have to convince 100 people to do that, to go along with the lie. She has to convince 100 people, and actually, really, it should be hundreds, but she has to convince at least 100 people to not only go along with the lie, she has to convince them to passionately preach the lie. She has to convince them to go out back to their family gatherings and back to their workplaces and back to their neighborhoods and back to their towns. She has to convince them to go out into Niverville and Landmark and Cleefeld and say to everybody something that they blatantly know is a lie and it's a crazy lie to go out and passionately preach on the streets to everyone they know. I have seen Chris risen from the dead and you should believe in him for salvation. That's what LaDon has to do. What are the chances of that? 
And yet that's what happened with Jesus. His close family, his disciples, 11 of them, all his close followers, within days of his death, you have hundreds of people who knew him before his death and were close to him saying they have seen him risen from the dead and this thing spreads like wildfire through Jerusalem and all of Israel and it's throughout the entire Roman Empire within 20 years. But you know what's even harder than this? Ladon doesn't just have to convince 100 people to, to, to lie and in fact to passionately preach something they know to be a lie when they haven't seen me risen from the dead. She has to do this in the face of persecution. She has to do this in the face of persecution. I mean, think about this. I want you to think about something again. Because, again, we, because of the 2,000 years difference, Christians get fuzzy on this and skeptics get all emboldened about this. We need to go back to that time and figure out what were these people thinking and feeling. So let's imagine for a moment that you're here today and let's imagine that you witnessed, you know, like there's a big uh, uh, court case against some mob somewhere and you witnessed something that this mob was doing that you shouldn't have seen and now the government's going to use you as a witness in a case against the mob. So, and it's the truth. You're not lying about the mob. You're actually going to tell the truth in court about the mob. And so days before the trial, though, some of the mob guys come to your house and they threaten you and they say, if you tell the truth, we are going to break every bone in your body, we're going to beat you, we're going to whip you, and we're going to kill you in the worst imaginable way. Now, how do you feel inside? Feel scared? Okay, you're a human being, okay? Most of us are going to chicken out right there, except by the grace of God, if God helps us tell the truth. Isn't that true? I mean, that's what we human beings are. Someone says, I'm going to beat you and break your bones and whip you and make life horrible for you and kill you in the worst imaginable ways. Most of us are going to be too chicken to tell the truth, never mind a fib. Isn't that true? Apostle Peter was crucified upside down. They put nails. Think about this. Well, first he got whipped. Then they put nails through his wrists. Then they put nails through his feet. Then they took him upside down and they jammed him into the ground and let him die a slow, agonizing death because he said he saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now, how many people would have the courage to, do, to, to keep up a fib? You make up a fib. Let's make up a fib. LaDawn calls you. Let's make up a fib that Chris rose from the dead and you saw him. Now you go out and you get tortured for, for it. How many people are going to hold to that to the end of their lives? None! You won't find anybody that can do that. And maybe you can find, again, one really, really, you know, crazy, unbalanced, nutso person. Maybe you find one, but you've got to find a lot more than one. You know what's amazing to me? You've got these 11 disciples, you've got the close family, you've got the close followers, and they spend the rest of their lives spreading this story that they've seen Jesus risen from the dead. And none of them, if that was a lie, somewhere in there, someone should have broken. Isn't that true? I mean, anytime a group of criminals gets captured for something, they separate them out, they put them in jail, they start threatening them, and within, you know, often a couple of days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years, but somewhere, someone's going to start, what do they say in the movie? Singing, right? Someone's going to start telling. Someone's going to start tattling. Isn't that true? I mean, I was reading a book, uh, Chuck Colson, he was part of the whole Watergate scandal there with Richard Nixon, and when they rounded up all the political guys, he said he was amazed how quickly all these guys who were in it together started telling on each other. Okay, you know what's amazing to me? Eleven disciples, Jesus' close family members, brothers, mom, all these people, there are hundreds of people that are claiming this, and nobody breaks down. I mean, if they're telling a blatant lie that they got together and planned, you can guarantee the moment any kind of persecution hits, a whole bunch of them are heading for the door. Hey, look, we had a meeting, and they're lying. 
don't hit me anymore. I know, I know, we are lying, we made it up. They would be totally giving this away. We don't find it. What we find is this band of people, and it explodes throughout all of Israel and explodes throughout the, the Roman Empire, and they are telling people that they've seen Jesus risen from the dead. Never mind the fact that this whole thing could have been shut down if he didn't actually rise from the dead. The first thing the Pharisees and everybody else in Jerusalem would have done is, come here, come here, come here, come here, to the tomb. There's his body! And it's shut down right there. The, the new religion, the baby religion, is gone right there. If Ladon tries to get a movement started and she manages to find 100 really crazy people who are, re- who are willing to be persecuted for something they know they made up and it's a fib, the first thing all the rest of Steinbach's going to do is take them to the, where I was buried and say, there's his body. And the new religion is dead right there. So what happened? How do we explain it? The only way to explain it is that they actually saw Jesus rise from the dead, and this is why increase, throughout history, skeptic after skeptic after skeptic, some of the most brilliant journalists and legal minds and historians have, when they've examined the evidence, they've realized that the most rational explanation for the birth of Christianity is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Let me read you a few more quotes. Malcolm Muggeridge, one of the most famous journalists of the 20th century, He was British, he was hugely respected, he was extremely liberal, and he was extremely skeptical of Christianity until later in his life he decided to examine the resurrection. And just like Simon Greenleaf, he studied the resurrection, and as a journalist, he's trying to think of motives. Why would these people lie? Why would they do this? How did it explode? Why did so many people believe it? And the more he studied it, the more he realized that all of the explanations he had in his head didn't actually fit. And he was finally left with the conclusion that the only only explanation that makes any sense for how Christianity got started and why the disciples and all Jesus' followers did what they did is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And so he wrote a book called, after being skeptical, he wrote a book, Jesus the Man Who Lives. And this is what he writes in that book, that the resurrection happened seems to be indubitably true. So that's a guy who was not biased to the resurrection. He was biased against the resurrection and a hugely respected journalist. How about Sir Lionel Lucku? Now there's a name. Lionel Lucku. He was one of the world's most successful defense attorneys. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records uh, for defending the most, uh, having the most murder trial acquittals in a row. At one point, he went 245 trials in a row where he won the case and, and 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 the person was acquitted. Okay, 245 in a row. This guy's an expert in, in law, in evidence, in witness testimony. He's an, ex, he's an expert. In his, uh, in his uh, early 60s, he started to quit, he was, he, and he was a skeptic of Christianity. He didn't believe it. He decided to write a book refuting, you know, the, the resurrection stuff. He began to study it. And in the end, just like Muggeridge and just like Simon Greenleaf before him, he ends up writing a totally different book called Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? And he gave his life to Christ. And this is what he writes in that book. Look at this quote. I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and I'm still in active practice. I've been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. That's a skeptic won over by the evidence. And I could go on and on. Like I said, I had pages of quotes this week that I was looking through of other skeptics and atheists and philosophers and historians who doubted it, examined it, and changed their minds. C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, George Littleton, Lee Strobel, Gilbert West, John Montgomery, Hugo Grotius, J.D. Anderson, and many, many more. I'll leave you with one last quote here. Frank Morrison, a journalist in the, uh, in the 1900s. 
And he wanted to, again, very skeptical as well. He wanted to prove that it's all a myth. The resurrection didn't happen. And in the end, he too uh, came around and he finishes his book. He ends up writing a book called Who Moved the Stone? And at the end of that book, I, I read the last page of it this week. And uh, the last page of his book, he says this, there certainly is a deep and profound historical basis for that much disputed sentence in the Apostles' Creed, the third day he rose again from the dead. And so there just is, it, it's, it's the best explanation, okay? Now, Dan, I'm going to do something mean to my PowerPoint guy. Dan, I want you to skip ahead to the rationalizations thing. Next page there, page seven. Um, see, everybody has to grapple with this question, okay? Everybody has to grapple with this question, did Jesus actually rise from the dead or not? So if you're going to say, no, he didn't rise from the dead, you have to come up for a different, exp- you have to come up with a different explanation because Christianity did start. It started out of nothing. It's got 2.2 billion followers now. It exploded through the Roman Empire very quickly. How did that start? Why did the disciples go through what they did? Why did they preach what they did? You have to have an explanation. So if he didn't actually die from the dead, what are our options? Well, the first option, as I've just looked at here, isn't very, isn't very attractive. Maybe his family members just made up a lie, and they just did it like that. Well, I've showed you that already. That's, it doesn't make sense. Well, second thing maybe, so the second uh, idea then is, well, maybe the disciples hallucinated. Maybe they hallucinated that they saw Jesus risen from the dead, and that's why they were willing to go through such persecution, because they thought he had risen from the dead, but he hadn't really. And, uh, okay, so that's an interesting theory that that skeptics, because they have to have an answer. If he didn't actually die, they have to have what happened. Uh, The interesting thing about a hallucination, though, is a hallucination is something that happens when my brain tells me that something, something happened and it didn't happen. So my brain tells me it happened, but it didn't happen, and then I become convinced of it. That's a hallucination, okay? Now, certainly, a hallucination could explain one person thinking they saw Jesus rise from the dead, and maybe that one person would be willing to go to the death for their hallucination. That's possible. But the thing that is so crazy about the hallucination theory is, how did 11 disciples all have the same hallucination at the same time, not to mention Jesus' family members, and at least 100, but up to 500 other people, how did they all have the same hallucination? Was this thing catching like the cold? So I have a hallucination that I see Jesus risen from the dead. You have a hallucination, you see Chris Dirksen risen from the dead, and then you breathe on someone and they catch it. Oh, I'm having a hallucination. It doesn't make any sense. Hallucination doesn't make sense on a mass scale. Not to mention that if it was a hallucination, again, everybody in town could have just taken them to see the dead body. Oh, yeah, look, there's a dead body. Oh, I guess I didn't see him risen from the dead. Okay, well, maybe it wasn't a hallucination. Maybe they didn't lie. Both of those things don't make any sense. The, the last explanation, the last alternative is maybe Jesus didn't actually die. Maybe he, you know, he was on a cross and the, just the trauma of the whole thing was so bad. And so he lost a lot of blood and he fainted. They took him down off the cross and nobody bothered to check his pulse because obviously, again, 2,000 years ago, we just have this idea that 2,000 years ago everybody was stupid. They weren't stupid, okay? They just had less technology than us and in some ways that probably made them smarter, okay? Okay, but they weren't stupid people. They were just, they lived a long time ago and they didn't have the same technology. But they knew when someone was dead, but let's just cast that aside. They pulled Jesus off the cross and they couldn't figure out that he was dead. So they wrapped him up, put him in the tomb. Now he lies there in horrible agony, unconscious. He's lost tons and tons and tons of blood. He's got holes in his wrists, in his feet. He's been beaten horribly. His bones are out of joint. After three days, he comes, he comes out of it, unwraps himself, staggers to the tombstone and moves the tombstone. 
and then staggers out, falls at his disciples' feet, and they go, he is risen. Yeah? Does that make any sense? We're going to be resurrected just like him. <gasps> I mean, he would have looked horrible. He didn't die? No. These people were willing to give up their lives because they were confident that they would be resurrected someday because they had seen him overcome death. Staggering out nine-tenths of the way to dead isn't overcoming death, and it doesn't convince anyone else to die for you. So we're left with what is the most plausible, rational, reasonable explanation for the events that we see at the turn of the, you know, the, the first century A.D. there that lead us to where Christianity is today and how it exploded so quick from this one historical person, Jesus. And the most rational, reasonable explanation there is is he actually rose from the dead. Well, that's actually good news. And that's the foundation, Okay. That's the foundation for how we get, because people want to start with this, and they need to start with these questions. It's the first two questions. If you go to that next one there, Dan, it's the first two questions that matter. It's, is there a God? And we look around the universe, and we say, what's the most plausible explanation for it? There's got to be someone out there. We look at the resurrection. We look at the events of how Christianity got started. What is the most plausible explanation? Jesus must have, must have actually risen from the dead which means then that there is a God and Jesus is that God. Okay, that's the foundation. Everything else is just details. Somebody wants to argue with you about this little nitpick thing or this little thing they think is a contradiction and we'll get to some of those supposed contradictions next week and there really is none. But uh, certainly the people that think there's so many, they usually can't think of any examples, but they want to start with these little things and they're not asking the two biggest questions. You have to talk about those. Because that's the foundation. We start there. We don't start with the Bible. We start there. Now, once we've gone through those first two things, now we say to ourselves, okay, next question. There is a God. Jesus must be that God. He actually rose from the dead. That being true, and that's the most reasonable thing we can see, that being true, okay, if Jesus loved us that much, if God loves us that much, that he would come down to earth and die on this cross for us and raise from the dead so we could follow him. He obviously wants people to follow him. He obviously wants people to know about him, right? He didn't hide this. You wouldn't come down and die for the sins of the world and hide it. He wants people to follow him. So if he wants people to know about him, then the question is, well, did he leave us a record somewhere and where is that record? Because he didn't try to hide it. He wants people to know about him. There must be a record of his life somewhere. And so we look around. Where is that record? There's only one. There's only one book in the world. You won't find a record of Jesus' resurrection in the Quran. You won't find it in the Hindu scriptures. You won't find it in the Buddha, whatever things. You won't find it anywhere in any of those scriptures and holy books. There's only one book in the entire world. There's not 20 books to pick from. There's not 10 books to pick from. There's not five books to pick from. There's only one book that satisfactorily speaks of the first two things. And that is this book here, the Bible. It's the only book. So now we've narrowed it down, okay? We've narrowed it down. We've gotten rid of the rest of the books. This is the only one that matches up with these other two things for which the most reasonable answer is, yes, there's a God, and yes, Jesus must be that God. The Bible's the only one that testifies to both of those things. So now we've brought it down to that. We've, we've eliminated all the other possibilities. Now we ask the question, what does this book say about itself? Because if Jesus left himself a record, if he left himself a record because he wants people to know about him, because he wants people to follow him, if he left himself a record, if he wrote it down, if he put it in a book, then you would expect that the book would tell us this is from God. 
So what does the Bible say about itself? Does the Bible say it's from God and it doesn't have any errors? And the answer is yes and yes. The Bible most certainly claims to be from God and it most certainly claims to be without errors. I could show you many, many scriptures, but 3,800 times, get this, three more than, actually it's more than, it's not 3,800 times, it's more than 3,800 times, more than 3,800 times in scripture we find the phrase, God said or thus saith the Lord. More than 3,800 times. In addition to that, never mind that, there are hundreds of passages where the scriptures are called the word of God or the prophecies are called the word of God and the words of God. So thousands and thousands of times from the very beginning, from Genesis to the book of Revelation, throughout this whole thing, thousands and thousands of times, over and over again we read, God said, thus saith the Lord, this is the word of God. We find that all over through here, beginning to end. This book most certainly claims to be from God. And I'll just read you two quick passages here. We've touched on both these in this series, so I'm not going to spend time. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, I could show you many others. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. The Bible claims to be from God. 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No prophecy of Scripture is from man. It's all from God. The Bible claims to be from God. And in addition to that, it also claims to be without error. Over and over and over again, the scriptures say, this, this is the record that God has left for you. This is from God. This is from him, and this is. You can trust it 100%. God is true. There are no errors in it. I could show you many passages. Again, I'm just going to show you a quick couple of excerpts here. John 10, 34 to 35. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about an obscure passage of scripture from Psalm 82. And he takes this obscure little verse from Psalm 82 and he says, this scripture cannot be broken and because none of the scriptures can be broken. And in saying that, see, some of the liberal Christians nowadays, they want to pick what they call the big things. Yeah, like the Sermon on the Mount applies today, but the stuff about sexual immorality, that doesn't apply. They want to they make some things out and some things in and they, what they call the most important things, those are true, but the other stuff is just mistakes. Jesus takes one of the most obscure passages you can probably have from Psalm 82, verse 6. He quotes it to the Pharisees and then he says, no scriptures can be broken, including this obscure one. Let me show it to you. John 10, 34 to 35. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? And now he quotes them, I said you were gods. A little quote there from Psalm 82. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, even the obscure lines can't be broken. Jesus is saying the whole thing, it's, it's really all or nothing. You can't pick and choose at this thing and say, Well, I don't like that, I don't like that. It's all or nothing because the Bible claims to have no errors. So if you find one, then all of it's wrong because it's all a big lie. The scripture cannot be broken. That's why we can have trust. If it says in here God's forgiven you and you've repented and you're following him, you're forgiven. If it says in here that you're going to be resurrected someday if you follow Jesus to the end of your life, you're going to be resurrected. We can trust this thing because there are no mistakes in it. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times, okay? And so this is how we come to the conclusion. I'm going to go to that final slide there. And this is how we come to the conclusion that the Bible is totally trustworthy and true without errors. It's, again, it's not something we scientifically prove. It's a conclusion we come to based on other lines of evidence and reasoning, all of which are very reasonable. And if you're not going to believe that the Bible is true without errors, you have to come up with different 
answers to the above points. And the thing is, you're going to be forced to make some pretty wild claims. Aliens seeding life on the earth, people having hallucinations en masse. You're going to have to come up with some crazy explanations if you don't want to believe these things. But these are the lines of evidence. And, the, and this, is the, this is the reasoning by which we come to the Bible has no errors in it. Number one, there must be a God. Look at the universe around us. Number two, Jesus must be that God. Look at the resurrection. How else are you going to explain it? Number three, only the Bible testifies to those two things. So we've now narrowed it down to there's only one holy book that could match this thing up. And number four, it claims to be from God and without error. Therefore, based on those four things, we say, yes, the Bible is from God and it has no errors. And then now we can test it. And that's what I want to do next week is we can test it now. Is our conclusion true? Are we right in our conclusion? And so we can look. Does it match up here? Does it match up there? Are there, you know, is there stuff that's come to light that proves that it's wrong? We can test it with all those things and we're going to look at those things next week which will also help us to read the Bible and understand it better and it will grow us in our faith. But I want to end with one little thing here now. The greatest test of whether or not our conclusion here is true is goes back to a message Tom preached a couple of months ago, and it comes down to our experience. We're going to look at a whole bunch of different tests next week. Is this conclusion true? But the first test, and I think the most important test is, do we experience this to be true? Because if the Bible really is from God, and it really is without error, when we, when we dig down into it, do we meet God there? When we align our lives with it, no matter how much it feels like we don't want to do it, when we bring our lives into alignment with this, does it do something in our lives? Do we experience God? Do we hear God's voice? Does it change hearts? Do we experience that conclusion to be true? Because if that conclusion is true, there really is a Jesus, he really is alive, he really did rise from the dead, and these are his words, then this thing has to be more than just an empty book. It has to have power. And so as I was getting ready for this message, memories were beginning to flood to my mind for the course of my lifetime, going back to when I was very young, and then just all the way up to recently, I just, different memories, times when I've been in the Word of God, in the presence of God, just the experience of the presence of God had been so powerful. And I was, memories were coming to my life of times when, when God spoke to me through the words in this book so powerfully, it's so real to me, I think of being eight years old, and I, and I was so afraid of dying, I was so afraid of going to hell, and then one day the Lord speaking to me, reading in the Bible in 1 Kings chapter 8, and the Lord spoke to me and said, my name shall be there. And I'm eight years old. How does an eight-year-old know how to hear God's voice? And I'm reading the books, I'm just reading these words. They're just words on a page, right? That's all they are. And suddenly I read these words on a page, and I'm weeping, and there's such a release of peace, and I've never feared death or hell ever since. And I'm thinking of times in my life when I've needed to make a big decision and the Holy Spirit has spoken to me something out of these words. They just came alive and I knew from those words exactly what I was supposed to do and it altered the course of my life. And I'm thinking of times when I've been in the, in the Word and something I wasn't thinking of and didn't feel bad about, I read a word in here and suddenly conviction just went down so deep it just about split me in two. I was on my knees confessing, making things right and becoming a better person. Do we experience these words? We have a conclusion in our heads that it makes sense that the Bible would be God's word and that's true and it has no errors. That we have that conclusion and it's reasonable in our heads, but do we experience it to be true? And then as I was thinking back over my life and I'm thinking about all these things and I'm thanking God, wow, Lord, yes, you've spoken to me and you've done this and 
amazing what you've done in my life through your word and how I've experienced this to be true. And suddenly this thought comes, pops into my mind. How have you experienced it to be true this last week? How have you experienced it to be true this last week? See, because if Jesus actually is risen from the dead, if he actually is alive right now, then and his spirit is working, and these words are his words, that means they have power. They, you know, some Christians, they're living off their experience of God 10 years ago, 20 years ago. 10 years ago at the conference, I had this amazing experience with God. 20 years ago at camp, I had an amazing experience with God. Three years ago at that one service, that one prayer summit one time, I had an experience with God. But no, no, no. If he's actually alive, he rose from the dead, and he's watching you right now, and his spirit is at work, and these are his words, that means we can meet with him and be changed with him regularly. So the question came to my mind, Chris, are you just preaching out of your head? You're just preaching a mind thing this week? You're just doing a cool little thing to convince them in your heads and make them feel good? Or have you experienced this this week to be real? So I said, okay, Lord, have I experienced this to be real this week? And immediately three things came to my mind. I don't have time to share all of them. I'm just going to share the last two. Skip over the first one. First one, Wednesday morning, I'm spending time in God's Word. Early in the morning, I love to do that. And Wednesday morning in particular, I just shove off all work. I have an extra special long time with, with God. In the morning in my basement, I'm reading through the Paul's letters right now. And I'm in Colossians on Wednesday morning. In Colossians 3, I'm just reading because I'm just reading. You, you know, you read. And then I come to verse 13, and I'm just reading. Early in the morning with the Lord. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And, you know, I read books all the time. I read books every night before I go to bed. I, I love reading books, Okay. But there's something that only happens when you read God's word. And a verse will just, it pops. You don't just read it. It's not just in your mind. It pops. Something happens in your heart. I read, forgive. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And I said to the Lord, why is this popping out to me right now? I'm Chris Dirksen. I'm not mad at anyone. I'm not bitter. I get mad that easily. I don't have any unforgiveness. He says, ask me. Do I have any unforgiveness? Bam, two names are there, right? Just like this. Two names, just like that. I would never have thought of it. Two names. Minor irritants from the past, frustrations, leftover angerness, haven't forgiven them. I do that, and suddenly those words, just as the Lord has forgiven you, sear themselves into my brain and into my heart. And suddenly I just have this picture going full speed past my eyes of all the stupid things Jesus has forgiven me of. All the stupid, dumb, wicked, evil stuff, of selfish stuff I've done in my life, and he's totally forgiven me of it when I've repented of it. And suddenly, I'm like, oh, Jesus, how can I hold on to this? How can I hold on to these minor? You know, when you see what Jesus has forgiven you of, it doesn't matter what someone else has done to you. It's small. It might be bigger than what someone else has done to me. You might have some big stuff, but when you look at what Jesus has forgiven you of and saved you of, it gets a lot smaller. And suddenly, I saw how small this was over here, and I said, Jesus, oh, I'm glad to forgive them. I'm so thankful to you. And so he's pouring into my heart. I didn't expect that. I'm just reading the word. I'm just having my devotions. I'm not expecting this. Wham! Why? He's at, it's real. It's actually from God. He's actually alive. And then Friday, lunch. Going to the lunchroom. Some other staff are in there. We're talking about some of the crazy stuff going on in the world right now. Some of the stuff in the news this last week. It's just Unbelievable. And one of the stories we're talking about is how in Germany right now, not China, not Russia, not Africa, not one of these, a country that's a lot like ours, very Western, very liberal, very free, 
And in Germany this, uh, this past week, they threw a few parents in prison um, for committing the horrible crime of taking their kids out of perverted sex ed classes in school. Parents said, we don't want our kids going to those perverted sex education classes. And what you got going on in those classes, they took the kids out of school for those classes, and the German government put them in prison. Six-week sentences to start. And you hear that and you go, oh, I mean, it's one thing. You read about that in China, well, those poor Chinese. You read about that in Europe and you go, they're a lot like us. How long before that kind of thing is happening here? I don't know. So we're talking about this and you're looking at this stuff going on in the news and you go, well, good night. I come back to my office and I'm thinking of my three kids and I got a fourth on the way. I'm thinking of Joy and Charlie and Eden, my little kids, and I'm going, God, how on earth am I going to raise these kids for you in this world? I mean, the evil just starts to push in around you. You say, dear God, how can I go back to work this afternoon? How can I even concentrate? How do I raise these innocent, sweet little kids you gave me? How are we going to do that when evil is encroaching so aggressively? Sitting at my desk, and the only thing that comes to me, because I know, because I've been walking with Jesus for a number of years, I know that that there's something special about this word. I'm not going to sit there and worry all afternoon. I'm going to turn to the word of God. I said, Jesus, I just need something. Where am I going to turn to the word of God today? And I just had to thought the Lord's Prayer. I turn over to Lord, I'm sitting at my desk. And those of you who are parents, you know what it's like to feel fear when you have little kids. And there's other stuff that doesn't scare us, nothing like when we think about our kids. And I said, I, so I turned to the Lord's Prayer, and I said, Lord, I'm just going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And I just read, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And when I read that line, oh, these words are alive. I said, deliver us from evil. And suddenly those words just came up and it was a prayer. And I'm crying there at my desk and I say, deliver us from evil, Lord. Deliver us from evil. You are our Father. You are sovereign. You're in control. And those words just come alive because they're God's words. And suddenly God's speaking to me. When Daniel went into the, into the lion's den, what happened to him? Nothing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fire. What happened to them? Nothing. Why? Deliver us from evil. Our God is bigger. The goodness of our God is bigger than this evil. But you know where you get that from? The Word of God. He actually rose from the dead. He's actually alive right now. These actually are His words. We experience it. We don't just think it to be true. We experience it to be true. So I want you all to stand now. We're going to sing right away. One last song. But I just want to pray for you this week because some of you are just dry. You're bored with the Word of God. You're bored with the Bible. And there's different reasons. Some of you, it's because of obedience, disobedience. Some of it, it's not even that. You're just in a dry spot. That's why we get together like this in a body, and I can pray for you. And when we pray, God answers. But I want to pray that this thing is going to become real to you in your heart, not just in your head. It's not, don't leave here and just be convinced in your head that Jesus rose from the dead. It's time for us to go home and to follow him walking closely because there's evil in the, in the days ahead and we're going to have to walk closely, following closely behind Jesus. So if you would like more of a desire to read your Bible and to experience God in the Bible, I just want you to put your hands out. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we can ask you for any good gift, Matthew Chapter 7 says, if we ask you for any good gift, you're going to give it to us. Lord, I can't think of a better gift to ask for this morning than that you would give us a deep desire for your word, that we would experience you in the word, and that you would transform us through the word this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.